right. I'll say, bless the Lord. If you say, oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Hi, Kairos. I'm Chris. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, what's up? Um, I'm glad you're here tonight. Um, Here's the kind of place and people we want to be. We want to be able to engage the whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ anywhere, anytime, with anybody. And you just need to know, I'm really honored and still can't get over the fact. I was praying over the room tonight, and half of it was just saying, thank you, Jesus, that I get to pastor here. Uh, It's such a special place. And this is not false humility. That has very little to do with me or the worship style. It has everything to do with God's people coming into a room excited and expectant with listening hearts to hear from God. And so thank you that I get to be a part of this community. Last week, for those of you who were with us, Chris White was here. He was dropping mad hits all over the place, some of which I'm still processing uh, today. So I'm so thankful for him um, and his call for us to be uh, disciples that make disciples. And for many of you, he was here to like 1030. You guys were bending his ear trying to figure out the Lord is leading you to be appointed to the nations. I think I got that language correct. Um, but it's in that vein that I want to tell you the story of a missionary couple. Um, they met in college. She grew up in the mission field uh, underneath missionary parents. She came back to the States to go to a Christian college, and she wanted to go there so that she could study the original Greek and Hebrew of the Bible so that she could help translate the Bible into the native tongues of the people groups that she had grown up ministering around. She met a boy. He had a similar calling and passion. They fell in love. He proposed marriage. She said, yes, except you have to meet one standard before I'll accept your proposal. Do you know what it was? She says, you have to learn the language of the tribe that I want to minister to. (laughs) Boom. How's that for relationship goals? Ladies, you just need to know, set the standard and we'll rise to it. (laughs) If we don't, move along. All right? Nothing more intoxicating than a woman whose identity is in Christ and is on mission with God. And if you can't keep up, then I need somebody else. Bless the Lord. That one was for free. So he learned the language. They got married. They hit the mission field. Uh, Soon thereafter, they had a beautiful baby girl. And the Lord was incredibly gracious to them and moving and blessing their ministry. One day, um, she comes out with her baby girl. She waves goodbye to her husband. He gets on a plane um, with about four of his friends, and they're going to go try to reach a tribe that no one had yet reached. Uh, They were notoriously a violent people um, and brutal people, and so they had been dropping off gifts, paving the way, and this was the first time that they were going to make contact. Plane landed. He got off the plane. Him and his friends are originally, uh, at first, well-received, and then all four of them are murdered. Uh, They're impaled by tribal spears. Now, this is a story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. And I I have to be honest with you, if Elizabeth Elliot was my daughter, and that was my granddaughter, and Jim Elliot was my son-in-law, when I get news back in the States of what happened, love my enemies is not the first thing that comes to my mind. Now, I think it's more like that's when I get to become like some sort of apocalyptic type Christian where vengeance is mine and bless me, Lord, as I commit it. I want to go Old Testament on people. I want an eye for an eye and a tooth for a shotgun. You know, 
I, I, I'm not having that. Like, you know, it's, it's just, no. Like, it, that love and that Jesus and that forgiveness stuff is just fine when it applies to me. But when I actually have to live it out for those who have hurt me and hurt the ones I love, mm-mm, I'd rather fight fire with fire. And what Elizabeth Elliot does next so challenges my anemic understanding of what it truly means to live out the gospel. And it threatens my apoplectic, violent tendencies that still reign within my vengeful heart to want to hurt those who have hurt me. She takes her baby daughter, and within two years, she moves into the very village with the tribe that murdered her own husband. She translates the gospel and the scriptures into their native tongue, and after the gospel is received and believed by some of the villagers in there, Stephen Saint, who was one of the boys whose father was murdered, was baptized in a nearby river by two of the men who helped kill his father. That's him as a grown man with one of those men. What do we do with stories like that? We've been in a series called Five where Jesus is saying, hey, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And tonight he's going to ratchet it down into the nitty-gritty principles of life when you're facing violence and oppression and his demands are going to seem near impossible. But that's the story that I want playing in the back of your head as we read God's word tonight. Um, we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. Let me pray for us as you guys are turning there. Oh, Holy Spirit, we're going to need eyes to see and ears to hear. Because let's be honest, a lot of us in this room tonight, including me, want to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to what it is that you're about to say to us. We don't need another pithy little Bible lesson that tells us we should be doing more and we need to feel guilty about what we're not doing. We need the presence of the living God to come and animate us to life and show us the true power of the gospel and how to live like Jesus, not simply believe in him. And so, Jesus, I'm asking you to go before us in this text and make a way. And together we say, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard it said that the law says punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Yikes. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Because that's my first inclination. If you're a suit in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile... Carry it two miles, give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. I'll say the word of the Lord if you'll say mercy, Lord. The word of the Lord. All right. Um, man, I've been wrestling with this text, and I've had some help. Um, there is a guy, Dr. Matthew Meyer Bolton, who is 
uh, president and professor at Christian Theological Seminary, who I'm going to lean heavily on some of his writings and teachings on this matter. Because again, if you've been with us for five, go back, I'm going to kind of try to explain this. Jesus is using outlandish examples and hyperbole to drive home his point and to shake off the dust from our ears and pry open our sleepy eyes to actually see and hear the gospel and its implications for our lives. What he's not doing here is just going, hey, this is so impossible, I'll never achieve it, so therefore I just need grace. No, Jesus is at his ornery best here, and he is going after certain entrenched cultural and religious patterns that need to be revitalized and restored. And even though we're not steeped in the culture, these still hit heavy like anvils on our ears, don't they? And especially when I read that sign, do not resist the evildoer. Uh, first of all, I just need you to know that that term resist is a military term and it's talking about do not take up an armed resistance against the evildoer. But let me, because I know so many of your stories and I know that there are plenty of you in here who have been victims of evil and abuse, okay? Here's what this talk is not. Here's what this teaching of Jesus is not. It is not passive permission in the face of violence and harm. It's not what this is. This is not Jesus saying, hey, accept your wounds and embrace the cycle of violence that you're in. Not what Jesus is saying. Emphatically not what he is saying. This text is not an admonition to try harder. That's a recipe for disaster because this simply cannot be done in our own resources. But there is a resource that Jesus offers us to think radically differently about how we interact with oppression, injustice, and systemic forms of violence. Here's what this text is. It is about non-cooperation with violence and harm in all of its forms. It is about dismantling and disabling retribution and personal revenge. I don't get mad, I get even. That's what it's about, dismantling. Thank you. <laughs> this is none other than a blueprint for the church and how we're supposed to live. How is that possible? How do we do that without our resources? I think you just have to look at the story of God. Like, God made me an enemy, his divine friend. While I was yet a sinner, an enemy of the cross, Christ died for us. God made us orphans, his sons and daughters, through his incarnation and his crucifixion. And God gives extravagantly and nonsensically at times, and he wants to give us the courage to go and do likewise. To give and act and love and forgive the way that he does. Now, let me put some context on this. First of all, let's remember that the Bible was written to people who were under brutal religious and racial persecution. Which is why I need to read authors of a different gender and a different race. Because sometimes they understand systematic oppression in ways that I do not. Second, Jesus comes out and he just disappoints all the zealots. Who at the time there's a fevered pitch to raise up arms against their Roman oppressors. 
and they want their pound of flesh, and they want personal vengeance and be able to stamp God's name on top of it. And Jesus will have none of it. Jesus calls for his followers to renounce their right to retaliation. It's also, there's, there's probably like 25 fun cultural facts around all the examples that he gave you, and I would love to bore you with every single one of those details so you think I'm smarter than I really am. But here's just one that's great. Um, Jesus is going against the law of talion, which was eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. In its original context, that was meant to put strict limits on the right for revenge and killing. So it was actually, the intention of it was, no, 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 you can't overreact. There's actually limits to how you execute justice. And it was a grace and a mercy to say eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And that was meant to limit and bring that down. And it was meant to subdue all the violent tendencies that were in the human heart. And now he's saying, I say, don't resist the evildoer. If someone slaps you in the face, offer the other cheek. He's trying to demonstrate the power of inner freedom in the face of oppression. Jesus here is recruiting people to his counterinsurgency called the kingdom of God and his favorite weapons of mass destruction to strap in the hearts of his followers are faith, hope, and love. Now, here's where I know some of you are just giving me that dirty look. What kind of pie in the sky, wishy-washy, pacifier pacifist are you sucking on right now, Chris? Because that's hogwash, all right? We fight fire with fire. I'm going to stick a boot. I'll stop there because when you, I don't know about all this faith, hope, and love, it has to have limits. The kind of faith that I'm talking about is one that renounces retaliation in favor of salvation. The kind of hope I'm talking about is the one that not only gives the clothes off your back, but the clothes in your closet. And the kind of love that I'm talking about goes the extra mile even when you didn't sign up for the first mile in the first place. That's the kind of things that changes the course of human history. Jesus and his followers have been doing it since day one. And I just wonder when we forgot about it. It is the way of the cross, and I realize that it is downright offensive and obscene to our American sensibilities. But I would remind you, Jesus offered his face to be slapped, his shoulders to be whipped, his hands to be hung with nails, all so that he could increase his glory and add more people to the family of God. Another example that may help us on this journey and getting a vision and a picture of what it could look like. December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks slides over two seats to the window seat as the bus driver tells her to get up for a white passenger. And she decides to stand up by sitting down. She decides to fight fire with water. Let me give you a backstory up into that moment that will perhaps give you a deeper appreciation for the nature of her response in the face of systematic oppression and racism. Rosa Parks grew up going to school, and every day, she said, the bus would play a key part in her story. She would watch it drive by with all the white kids. 
why all the black kids walked to school. And she said she realized that it was a custom that I had no choice but to accept. She would go on to tell her biographer this, that was the day I realized that I lived in two worlds, one for whites and one for blacks. She would go on to get her high school diploma even though she had numerous ailing family members and financial setbacks and systematic oppression. She became one of only seven, there's 7% at that time that she got her high school diploma, only 7% of blacks ever got to that point. She would get a job and she would also become an early advocate and leader in the embryonic civil rights movement at that time. In 1944, she was on the way back from work when uh, the bus driver pulled off, picked her up. She walked through the front door, paid her fare, and she went to sit down in the back. Bus driver pulled it over. Uh, the man's name was James Blake. And he promptly told her to get up, get off the bus, and go through the back entrance like blacks are supposed to. She got up, complied, walked off the bus, and when she walked off, he drove off. She made a mental note at that point to try to avoid that bus driver and that route. Only two years later on her way home from work, little did she know she would step back onto James Burke's bus. Four days prior, she said, they found out about Emmett Till, who was brutally lynched and violently murdered for allegedly flirting with a white woman. And she was thinking of that as she sat down in her seat. The bus began to get crowded. James Blake stood up, grabbed the whites only sign and marched it three rows back and put it right in front of her and told all the blacks to move because the bus was full and they needed to give up their seats for white people. Now, you may argue, because I've argued with myself, contextually, is she okay for breaking the law even in light of the text that we read that says, do not resist the evildoer? Technically, the bus driver just broke the law and was representing years and years of systemic violence and oppression against her people. So imagine, this is a little girl who watches the bus go by every day, who's beat up and bullied because of her color, who faces setback after setback after setback, who's seen the face of this man who's kicked her off the bus before and driven away, and now he's moved the whites-only sign right in front of her. Technically, if you read Montgomery Law at that time, it said, after the bus is full, no one may ask anyone to vacate their seat. He's breaking the law. And he tells her to move, and she says she won't. And he says, then I'll call the police, and I will have you arrested. And that's exactly what she did. She sat there with nonviolent opposition to harm in all of its forms. She was escorted off the bus, and then what would soon come after that was the Montgomery uh, bus boycott, and then the civil rights movement would gain momentum like it never had before. At the time of her death, Rosa Parks had been awarded 43 honorary doctorates and was given the Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian honor the President of the United States can bestow upon someone. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking. Hey, 
That's an amazing history lesson, Chris. I get it. Good for her. But I'm not Rosa Parks. I'm not Elizabeth Elliot. It's just easier to be mean and hold grudges and to be stingy with what I've got because I just don't want to lose it. But I would argue with you, actually, I would encourage you to continue on that. Um, A lot of us think, if I honestly go the extra mile, love my enemies, and give to everyone who asks of me, there's a real possibility that I'm going to wind up poor, homeless, and probably be killed in the process. Uh, Congratulations, you just described the life of Christ. And I don't know about you, it's a lot easier for me to believe in him so I go to heaven one day than it is for me to follow him and accept the responsibility to bring heaven's rule here on earth in the face of oppression and justice. How is it possible? How will we ever live the way Jesus is calling to us to live? Generous, forgiving, and hospitable. It's only if we have access to the surplus of love, forgiveness, mercy, and grace that he offers us through Jesus Christ as Lord. Maybe this word picture will help, and if it doesn't, discard it. I feel like normally we have two options when it, when it comes to applying this text, and we baptize both of them and put Christian reasons why we do around them. We either, when harm or oppression or injustice comes at us, we either decide that we're going to become uh, doormats or deadbolts. Right? There's some of us who our tendency is not to confront. Our tendency is to be passive, aggressive, when it comes in the face <laughs> of that kind of stuff. We like to think that we're more polite and more forgiving than all of you hard-nosed people. And we let people walk all over us time and time and time again and then try to put some sort of Christian moniker on top of it. I don't think that's what Jesus is calling us to hear. There's too much sense of an inner freedom and an inner power. Do you think Jesus lived a life as a doormat? Some of us, we become deadbolts. Fool me once, you're done, all right? (laughs) Just slam the door in your face. I'm going to deadbolt it, power lock it. I'm going to get some kind of thing on the back door. I'm going to put a nail here so that no one can get in. You guys are staying out. Like, click, click, click. You're dead to me. You've hurt me, you've harmed me, you've insulted me, you're never getting close to me or any of the things that I care about. Those usually seem like the two options we have and we justify them and find scriptures to back them up. What if a third way was possible? What if if one of my pastor friends calls it, what if we're simply called to be door holders? What if when we see a fire injustice, oppression, or harm. And the Lord has brought it into our sphere of influence. We simply hold the door open and look at Jesus and say, after you. If you walk in that room, you'll change the atmosphere. And if that's where you're walking, my job's to follow you. I don't have it in me to do what's required to put this fire out. But when the living water walks through the door, then maybe I can fight fire with water.
Amen? So let's take 120 seconds and just kind of listen in to what it is that the Holy Spirit had you here tonight to hear. Is there a person, a relationship, or maybe even a cause that the Lord is opening your eyes and ears to? Is there a way that you've been oppressed or a way that you've been compliant in oppressing? Is there something that's already happened this week where you realized, oh man, I just fought fire with fire. And Jesus, the living water, was wanting me to engage in that in a different way. Is there a pattern of that in your life that maybe the Lord wants to expose and transform and heal and redeem? Maybe ask the Lord to bring to your mind someone who's in need that you've ignored, pretended not to see. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. 